How many people thought they had a bad meditation? No, really, I'm curious. How many people had a bad meditation? How many people think they're a bad meditator? Come on, be honest. Okay, good. How many people think they're a great meditator? Oh, we got we got one or two coming out of the closet there. Those great meditators. Good. I just I just wanted to see because I want to talk a little bit about a phenomena that's part of our mind and that's talked about in Buddhist practice as the judging mind. And the judging mind can be both negative and positive. You know, either way, oh, I'm a horrible meditator, I'm a great meditator, I'm a wonderful person, I'm a horrible person. It's all a certain movement of mind that evaluates and judges us in a certain way. And I'm less worried about the, uh, the positive judgments. I'm going to more focus on the negative. The positive are harder to get rid of, ultimately, um, but they're not so, they're not so um, uh, um, destructive. They're not so helpful, ultimately, let me say it that way, but they're not so destructive, they're not so painful, they're not so uh, um, hurtful as the negative judgments we might have about ourselves. If you read the Buddhist text, judgment plays a quite a pivotal role in in the Buddhist text. So if you read the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, at a certain point he vows to sit, he's sitting under the Bodhi tree and he vows to sit until he's enlightened. And he's already gone through, it said, lifetimes of practice. And then in his current lifetime as Siddhartha Gautama, He's gone through all kinds of severe ascetic practices and he realizes that doesn't work. And then he finds the middle way. And then at a certain point he realizes, he, he just realizes he needs to sit down and he will be awake. If he just sits down and he vows not to move until he's awakened. And he's got, you know, he comes from a warrior class and princely class and he's got that kind of warrior attitude. He sits down, and as the texts go, you know, he's a warrior, so he gets attacked. He gets attacked by what's called the armies of Mara. And Mara and the Buddha kind of go together. If you have a Buddha, you have a Mara. Mara's like the tempter or the evil one or the, you know, it's not quite the devil exactly, but similar kind of concept in Buddhism. And so the armies of Mara come. And how do the armies of Mara come? They come like they come in our own minds. They come as restlessness and as doubt and as sloth and as torpor and as agitation and wanting and not wanting. You know, it doesn't let us be, right? It keeps us involved and agitated and upset and confused and it's obscuring. And, and so Mara comes as... as um, both, all, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, mind states. Um, Mara, it's said that Mara sends his three daughters who are these, you know, kind of phantasmagorical maidens who would drive any man nuts. I realize I have, the, I have some actual quotes about his daughters. Maybe I should read those. 
<laughs> well, they're kind of wild, actually. Here, I've got, yeah, Mara assumes a fearsome guise with a thousand arms. His demons make eerie sounds uh, to generate fear, rain, hail, showers, sh uh, uh, showers of fire, thunder, and an earthquake are also used. And then his three daughters are sent, and they're named Tanha, Arata, and Raga, which means craving, boredom, and lechery. <laughs> you know, we have to admit, you know, that the, the suttas are kind of patriarchal and, you know, they don't give the best image of women often, and especially when it comes to tempting the Buddha, they were a bad thing. And so it says, they conspire on the principle that men's tastes vary to assume forms ranging from those of virgins to mature women. And they display wiles by which they, any ordinary man's heart would have burst or heart, hot blood would have gushed from his mouth, or he would have gone mad or crazy, or would have shriveled up, dried up, withered like a cut green rush. So, so they were powerful in their own way. <laughs> you know. but, but the Bodhisattva, the Buddha, unmoved by their charms and wiles, you know, he's very determined. But these are, the, I mean, these are part of the armies that attack him in addition to the thunder and lightning, things to scare him, drive him away. Just like, you know, everything that might scare us, might drive us away from actually being here, being present, being awake to what's happening now. And all of the armies fail, right? They all fail, and the Buddha's sitting there, sitting there, and Mara's starting to see that nothing's working. And he brings out the big gun, Right. This is the penultimate moment before enlightenment. And what does Mara bring out? He brings out judgment. He brings out a kind of guilt. He says, what right do you have? Who do you think you are, basically, to get enlightened? What right do you have to get enlightened? And it's actually something people actually think about themselves. They think, oh, I'm not worthy of getting enlightened, which is... As the Dalai Lama would say, that's wrong thinking. That's actually wrong thinking. When we think, oh, we don't know enough, or we haven't done enough, or we don't, what right do we have, or we're not worthy enough, that's actually a misunderstanding of the truth. And so Mara comes with judgment, and it's, the, it's literally the penultimate moment before the Buddha, hearing this, he touches the earth, he touches the earth to affirm his right to be here. And you can touch the earth. He actually sat like this. And the earth affirms him, just like the earth actually affirms us. You know, we think of the earth as our mother. And the mother affirms their children. That's what mothers do. That's what parents do. Even if it's, you're just in the mothering role, you're not actually the mother. We affirm the child. And so the earth affirms the Buddha, and in the next moment, he's enlightened. So I always thought that was really interesting. Oh, this is the last thing before enlightenment is a certain form of judgment, a certain form of condemnation or challenging us 
that we don't have a right to be, to be here, or to be enlightened, or to be who we are. And of course, this may have greater implications for how we understand the judging mind, ultimately, and we'll go into that. Now, uh, anybody here not seen the judging mind? Let me just, you know, let me just check. Look around, see how many people haven't had a judging mind. Okay, that tells us something. It's pandemic. It's pandemic. It's so pandemic, we actually take it for granted. We think, oh, this is how it is. And the most, uh, the, the piece that may be the most unskillful is the fact that we tend to believe the judgments. And, when I, and I, let me clarify, when I'm talking about the judging mind here now, I'm talking about the mind that's judging us in a negative way, in a pejorative way, harshly, meanly, critically, in a demeaning way, and that actually makes us feel bad about ourselves. And it's, a, it's, I don't know, maybe it exists in all cultures. I don't think it quite exists in the same way in a number of other cultures, though. Uh, maybe there's some form of it, but in, in, especially in the West and especially in the highly um, individuated post-industrial reality, it seems like it actually keeps getting worse. It keeps getting stronger as we're more disconnected, as we live in a more uh, uh, disconnected way, both from the earth, from one another, and we live in a world of dualism. Things are black or white. Things are good or bad. You know, there's high or low that we divide up reality over, there's me and you. That we're here and they're there, you know, whatever it might be, whatever the way we might separate, whether it's by culture or by country or by race or by religion or by gender or sexual preference or whatever it is, or by hair color or by eye color or by height or by width or whatever way we create us and them. That's a dualistic understanding of reality. And reality is not dualistic. There is a wholeness here that we fail to see, that we fail to understand, and that the Dharma asks us to start to look to see the unity of reality that is beyond the particular, the particulars being, oh yeah, some things are good and bad, hot and cold, black and white. But those are the particulars, though all those particulars are still imbued with the same unity, the same dharmic nature or Buddha nature. That reality itself whether it's hot or cold, is arising magically. As they say, out of emptiness. Or 
It's empty itself. It's a magical display here. We, we are a magical display of reality. Consciousness itself. When we start to be mindful in a, in a deep way, and mindfulness you know, is a common word these days, but originally it always had to do with penetrating reality. Penetrating reality. It just didn't mean, oh, you didn't forget to get the Rice Krispies at the store. You were being mindful. You got the Rice Krispies. You know, I mean, that's, you know, it's okay. It's, it's good to remember the Rice Krispies, be mindful on every level. But mindfulness originally meant to penetrate reality, to see the truth of our existence, of what's here. And so part of the disconnection from that truth will keep surfacing until we feel so separate, we're actually separate from ourselves. We're judging ourselves, right? As if we're, first of all, as if we're a thing. As if we're a thing. And that, or as if our value is based on something we do, or we said, or how we acted, or how much money we have, or how we look or whether we're concentrated or not in the meditation. There's a, a very famous story in Buddhism. It's the story of Angulimala. And Angulimala was a serial killer, one of the few great serial killers in, in religion. Doesn't often get a lot of play, but <laughs> Buddhism has its unique quirkiness to it. And so Angulimala's, you know, killed 99 people and he's trying to kill the Buddha. And the Buddha's doing his slow walking meditation. He's walking very slow. And, and Angulimala is supposed to be a strong, he's strong enough he can take down a, an elephant who's running. And, you know, I saw the elephants in Africa this year and you don't want to actually mess with the elephants at all. Not at all. In fact, <laughs> we were with, at one point we were with a really big, strong ranger and we were somewhere we were really in the bush and he said we have to get out of the bush because the elephants are in a cranky mood right now and we don't want to run into them here we want to we want to be more open we want to be able to see where they're coming from because we want to get away from them when, when it came to the lions when he saw the lions he said oh if we hurry we can catch the lions <laughs> I'm like I don't want to catch any lion <laughs> personally but, but the elephants, he wasn't going there at all. And they're, they're powerful. But Angulimala, it said, could run down and bring down an elephant. But he's trying to run and catch the Buddha who's doing the slow walking meditation. This is, you know, it's the text. It's, they're a little magical. And, and Angulimala can't catch him. And he yells, stop, monk, stop. And, and the Buddha, by his omniscience, knows it's Angulimala and knows that he's trying to catch him. And he says, he says I have stopped. Now you stop, Angulimala. Because he knows Angulimala's already killed 99 people. He's trying to get to 100 is a certain... You know, it's like those games you play and you get to the next level. Angulimala's trying to get to the next level of serial killer and, um, at 100. And then... Uh, so Angulimala kind of gets the message and he stops. And he, he gets a big transmission from the Buddha and he becomes a disciple. And he's totally accepted in the Sangha, totally accepted. 
His value was not based on what he does. Your value is not based on if your cell phone goes off during the meditation. <laughs> you can notice, like, the judging mind can come really quickly, especially if we're meditating. Then it's like, oh, shit, I forgot to turn it off. I'm such an idiot, right? Oh, my God, I hope they don't see it was me. And <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But the judging... The, your, our value is not based on what we do. I'll, I'll wait until this goes by. Now I want to be careful here because Angulimala is still responsible for his actions. So he still has karma for having been a serial killer. And that karma plays out in the text. They, People throw things at him, and the Buddhist just says, bear it, monk, bear it. It's, it's your karma. But he actually gets enlightened. His value is not based on what happened. The, the, the nature, the Buddha nature, it's, it's here, it's everywhere. It may not be seen, our true nature may not be realized, the unity of reality may not be seen and realized, and we may act out of very deluded understanding. But we don't, it, the judgment is extra. What we want to see is what's the truth? What's the truth of reality? Even what's the truth of our actions? You know, we're pissed off and we act a certain way and it's unskillful. Okay, we want to see that. If we're not willing to acknowledge it, we can't change it, we can't make amends, we can't grow. What happens is, and this is the real limitation of the judging mind and of believing the judging mind, is we'll have some kind of experience and the judge will come in and it actually takes us away from the experience we end up engaged with the judgment. You know, now we're rotten, now we're bad, now we're horrible, now we're evil, now we're the worst, now we're something's wrong with us. We don't even remember, we're, we're not in the present with what was happening anymore. We're totally engaged with the judgment. And it keeps us spinning in a certain way where reality isn't allowed to unfold. Being isn't allowed to reveal itself. The Dharma isn't allowed to be realized if we say, stay engaged with the judgment and the judging mind. So another way to talk about it, give you another picture from Dogen. He said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken with all things. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. What that means is we study, we start where we are. We start with what's here. And with what's here, if we awaken, we don't have to start. We don't have to do anything anymore. We're not awake. We're not realized. We're not liberated. We know that. We want to see the foibles of self, the misunderstanding of self, the delusion of self, the limitation of self. We don't want to judge it. Dogen didn't say, oh, we study the self to judge the self. No, we study the self 
What did I say? We study the, we studied the Buddha way to study the self. We study the self to forget, to let go of the self, to be released, to not grab on. Judging is a way to grab on to the self. Depending on what the self did or how we acted or, you know, and you, you know, a lot of judgment is around self-consciousness. You know, you walk into a party and you're, everybody's wearing, you know, a formal gown and you're wearing a miniskirt, you know, and all of a sudden, oh, I'm such an idiot, I should, I should have known better and blah, blah, You know, and it's like, in, we can't be at the party. We can't just be. We're dealing with this inner critic, inner judge, inner idea about who we should be, which is totally based on something inorganic. It's not alive in the present moment. It's not, the, the judgments generally are based on values, on standards from the past, from our parents, from society, from siblings, from other people that we've injected, we've interjected, that we believe, that we think, oh, we have to be this way. And of course, is even, even as you get, as you start to refine the mindfulness of the judging mind, then we have to get to the Buddhist self-judgment and the spiritual self-judgment that comes. Oh, I should be more compassionate or I should be quieter or, Sometimes people have really big experiences in meditation. Oh, I should, I should calm this down. Who said you should calm it down? Buddha never said you should calm it down. He said you should be mindful of it. You should pay attention to it. And, he didn't, and, and if you're not concentrated, like that's a place people are often judgmental of themselves. If their minds... Yeah, anybody here have their mind kind of wandering around during the meditation tonight? <laughs> right? So that's a really easy place where people start to judge themselves, especially if you've been meditating for, you know, a while, like a month or a week or, <laughs> you know, 10 years or whatever it might be. Start, people start saying, oh, I've been doing this so long, I'm rotten meditator, horrible, I'll never get it. Those thoughts are, first of all, they're totally unhelpful and they're not true. And it's not because a meditation's not good or bad. You can, we can make a certain kind of assessment, but the assessment has nothing to do with our value. It's true. Maybe I was spaced out for the whole meditation. So, <laughs> first of all, <laughs> nobody knows but you anyways. Right? <laughs> you don't even have to tell anybody. <laughs> Nobody actually cares if you were spaced out during the meditation. And it's just a common, normal thing that happens as part of the meditative process. And the more relaxed we are about it, actually the less it'll start to happen. The tension, the judgment, it's just not skillful. If I, if I thought it was skillful, I'd encourage you to be really hard on yourselves, really mean to yourselves, really rotten to yourselves. You know, if that led to enlightenment, doesn't. The Buddha, when you read in the text the teachings on mindfulness, it's so clear. The Buddha says the practitioner knows. 
the practitioner knows if the mind is concentrated or unconcentrated. The practitioner knows if there's lust in the mind or if there's not lust in the mind. The practitioner knows if the mind is agitated or, un or calm. The practitioner knows. He doesn't say the practitioner knows that they're unconcentrated and they're rotten meditator for being un... That, that's just not there. And, and the Buddha was practical. If he thought that would help, he would say that. I mean, he's incredibly practical. So, where are we? Here we are. <coughs> so it's very helpful as we, as we practice mindfulness to be able to discriminate certain states of mind. And you can start to, you can actually name them while you're practicing. You can, all of a sudden, you'll notice the, you know, there, there'll be thought. It's first of all, mostly judgment comes as thought, although it can come as a feeling or as a felt sense, but usually it's less conscious when it comes like that. Um, uh, but certain, certain, um, certain thoughts have themes. They're really, they're not just random thoughts, they actually are kind of state of mind or state of heart. And uh, so you can uh, sometimes notice the wanting mind or the hating mind or the aversive mind or the uh, mind of, of doubt. You can also start to be mindful of the judging mind. And you can just, oh, this is judgment. Start to see it. And this is first and foremost, the first and foremost skillful means for working with the judging mind is just to recognize that there's judgment in the mind and the heart. And then to see what happens as we see that there's judgment. And the judgment can be, it really comes in two forms. Either there's some kind of denigrating or demeaning or harsh or critical judgment. The other way to think about, the other way that judgment comes is as comparing mind, right? Oh, these people are such good meditators and I'm not. Or these people are such bad meditators and I'm so good. Right? It can go either way. This is called conceit in Buddhism. Or, and this is important to get, it could be, oh, we're the same. Right? So the judgment can be better than, less than, or the same as. All of that is still positing a sense of self that's separate. And that's part of the confusion. That's really the ultimate basis of the judging mind, is not seeing the unity of reality, is not seeing the oneness of reality, not seeing that even as we, we can discriminate the distinctions between each of us, those distinctions don't have to separate us. And that the value, our value, is not based on being better than, or worse than, or even the same as. Because the same as is still, there's still a dualism in that. There's still me and you in that way, that we're still separate rather than beginning to see the unity of how reality is expressing itself, has manifested in all these forms, 
right? In all these forms, it's failing to see the manifestation itself that underlies the forms. It's like just seeing the fingers, but don't see where the fingers come from, that they're part of the hand. And it's one thing, even though the fingers are distinct. And so we don't say, oh yeah, the pinky, too short, you know, <laughs> get rid of it. Uh, the thumb, you need to lose a little weight. And, you know, it's not, you don't, you don't need to do that. It's a hand. There's something here that's bigger than the fingers that the fingers are part of. There's something here that we are part of that's bigger than what we are, that unifies reality. The whole arising of a reality in this phantasmagorical, magical way. The, the Tibetans, in the Tibetan Buddhism, they like to talk about it as a rainbow. It's a beautiful way to understand it. The rainbow has all these colors and it manifests and it's amazing and there's nothing there. That's a little bit how reality is. That's what we mean when we say it's all empty. It doesn't mean the rainbow's not there. The rainbow's actually there, even though we know that it's empty or that there's nothing there in any solid way, in any concrete way in any reified way. And that's where, the, that's where mindfulness can really begin to penetrate reality. At a certain depth of the mindfulness, we start to see that everything that's here, everything that's arising, the feelings, the sensations, the sounds, the uh, uh, sights, that they're all, they're all simply appearing and disappearing magically. And that there is this amazing capacity to realize reality, to realize the Dharma, to understand the truth of the way things are, and the unity of this phantasmagorical arising that we call life. And we can start to, when we begin to see at that level, we can start to see this, the whole idea of judging ourselves is based on a misunderstanding of reality. We think we're a thing among other things. Not only that, we think there's a thing inside of us that can tell us we're bad. And then, and then when you hear a teaching on the judging mind, we can think, oh, I'm really bad for judging myself. Mind that's very tricky, the judging mind. The Dharma, the Dharma offers another possibility. Joko Beck said, she said, to enjoy life without judgment is what a realized life is like. To enjoy life without judgment is what a realized life is like. If we can just, we can be. We can allow the beingness of being a human being to shine forth. And the radiance of what it is to be, a, of our consciousness, to express itself. And we're not, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not bound 
or attached to needing to carve ourselves up based on certain standards or values or beliefs, but we're open to not, not to realizing reality again and again and again and again and again, each moment, every day, fresh, totally fresh. And people sometimes are afraid, they think, oh, if they don't have a strong judge, then they'll just go crazy. Or they'll act like a wild person, or they'll, you know, well, maybe. I mean, it's actually true. If there's no self-regulation, we, you know, you, one could be a sociopath. But in fact, we don't see the, the intelligence of our nature because partly we're always judging ourselves. We don't have any confidence in the fact that self-regulation can come from objective perception, from understanding, and from love, which are qualities of true nature, qualities of Buddha nature, qualities of awakening. In one of the great Zen texts, they say, uh, realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. That part of, part of letting go of the judging mind is letting go of the standard and the value and the ideal and the belief we're supposed to be perfect based on God knows what. You know, like some alternative reality we're going to get to someday where we're perfect. We can give it up right now. And then we can find the perfection of non-perfection rather than the, the unfindable perfection of perfection. <laughs> That's totally sad. Totally sad. <laughs> So if you didn't understand that, it's because I'm not really a Zen teacher, so I shouldn't be saying those things. <laughs> uh, the other part that's so important about the judging mind is it takes us away from what's happening now. So, and this is, okay, another way to think about it. There's a band of self, right? We study the Buddha way to study the self. So the self is a limited understanding of, of what we are. And the self doesn't want to actually go beyond that understanding of what we are. It doesn't want us to go beyond this. And actually conventional reality, in a certain sense, conspires that we all stay in our conventional band of Eugene or Deborah or Ron or Gail or whatever, whoever it might be. That this is who we are. And so we start to go beyond that. Maybe we start to have some experiences that are more fun than we're used to. Actually, maybe we start to have a meditation, we start to feel ecstatic. And the judge comes in and says, like, like said, Mara said to the Buddha, what right do you have to feel that? People are suffering. This is Buddhism. You shouldn't be, feel, <laughs> you shouldn't be feeling so ecstatic. That's not grounded. You're not being centered. It's, judgment. it's just judgment. It's just some idea. But the idea comes to keep us 
bound, attached, identified with the usual sense of self. Or maybe we have some experience, some feeling where we feel really down, really grief, tremendous grief. Or, or maybe, you know, you see something on the web about what's going on in the world somewhere. You don't even know anybody and you find yourself crying and you're thinking, oh, I'm such an idiot. I'm such a, you know, pushover. I'm this or I'm that or I'm, you know, why should I be grieving for these people? I don't even know them. And, Well, where does the judgment come from? So what? We're grieving. So what? We feel ecstatic. What happens if we stay present with the grief or with the ecstasy or with whatever the experience might be of being irritated or being angry or being afraid? Mindfulness asks us to be present. It doesn't ask us to change our experience. It asks us to penetrate, to see clearly what's the truth of the experience. If we're dealing with the judgment, we can't actually be mindful of the experience. And so to begin to disengage from the judgment, to begin to see judgment for what it is, that it's simply judgment, allows us to start to free ourselves from the judgment. The Buddha said, he said, rely on the message of the teacher, not his personality. That's really good to listen to here. <laughs> rely on the meaning, not just the words. Rely on the real meaning, not on the provisional one. Rely on your wisdom mind, not on your ordinary judgmental mind. And he's saying something to us directly. That we know the difference. We know that we have, that there's wisdom here, that there's a capacity for clarity, for clear seeing, for understanding. And to rely on that. Don't rely on your judging mind. And begin to learn to work with it directly, to use any, any kind of skillful means that can help Help us let go of the judging mind. Help us not identify, not believe the judgments. And there's a lot of ways you can begin to let go or disidentify. Recognition, mindfulness is one of the keys. Also, you can be very, um, you, can, you can be compassionate. You know, if the, if the judge does arise, and notice how you feel when you get attacked by the judgment, when it's demeaning or harsh or mean, then notice how you feel, just start there, be compassionate, it's suffering. The judging mind is suffering when we believe it. If you start with the suffering, you're not engaging in the judgment, you're staying where you are, you'll start to, then the presence starts to arise. Or you can, be, you can use the wrathful aspect of compassion, the sword of Manjushri, and just say, shut up, get out of here, be quiet, or no. Or you can use humor, is really great with the judging mind, really great way to work with it. Uh, you're, a, you're a horrible meditation teacher. 
okay, so I'm the worst meditation teacher, you know, ever, but this is all I've got tonight, so I'm going to do my best, <laughs> right? You know, or, or, or um, this is from Suzuki Roshi, a guy went in, fellow went in, he said, I went in for my meeting with Suzuki Roshi during Sashin. At that time, my main purpose was to get him to approve of me, right? He wanted the positive judgment. I told him how I was trying hard to do the right thing. He listened carefully, without judgment. He said, you get a gold star. <laughs> Suzuki Yoshi was actually great at using humor around judgment and around a kind of uptightness that people would get around him, you know, because they were trying to do the right thing and be a good Zen student. Somebody somebody who was, uh, went out to lunch with him, everybody was really nervous and self-conscious and being judgmental of themselves, you know, trying to be the good Zen student. And he sat down and he put the napkin on his head. <laughs> you know, they said you couldn't keep up the, the front anymore. You couldn't worry about what you did. He already did like something totally the worst thing. <laughs> You know, you, you know, what are you going to do if you're sitting there with the Zen master with the napkin on their head? You've got to relax a little bit. So that's another way. Whenever you have a judgment, put the napkin on your head. Just try that in a restaurant sometime. See what happens. <laughs> Anyhow, that's a little bit about the judging mind. It's really an important part of practice. Here's why it's important. It's this, one of the single most limiting factors to the unfoldment of the Dharma. It will stop your practice if you believe the judgment. And the, and the, and the amazing thing is, it's not true. The judgments aren't true. Even if there's a little bit of truth in the judgment, like you may have had an unconcentrated meditation, okay, so? So what? Right? Or you may have done something unskillful with your child or your partner or your parents. Okay, so if you did, what do you need to do? You know, one of the greatest lessons I learned as a parent was to apologize. Right? Like, I realized, okay, you're not going to be a perfect parent. Nobody's. Anybody here have perfect parents? <laughs> Well, if you ever have kids, you're not going to be one either, <laughs> believe me. So if you're not a perfect parent, when you see, okay, I screwed up, that was off, I'm sorry. You don't have to, you know, commit harikari. You don't have to, you know, go be, you know, beat yourself for the next six months. You can apologize. It's true with your child, your partner, your friends, your co-workers. It's one of the great skillful means is saying, I'm sorry. And meaning it, really meaning it. But you don't have to, you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to judge yourself for it. We get, to, we get to make mistakes and learn from our mistakes. I think that's all I have to say tonight. Any questions or comments? We have just a couple minutes. Okay, somebody's got their hand up there. Stand up. Oh, it's my friend. 
That's right. There you go. But really. No, no, no. You, you're making a joke, but it's actually, it's in, it, and maybe you're not getting close to total enlightenment, but maybe something expansive is happening. Something new is happening. Something we, we don't know what's going to happen if we don't go along with the judging mind. If we put our hand on the earth and say, no, I have a right to be here right now, no matter what's happening. So you just wanted to help me with that. I got it. Let's stand up. It helps me hear you. Um, you know, it can be helpful to investigate that, but the first thing is to disengage as much as possible. And then you, we can start to see why does it arise? Because we've interjected some idea, some value, some standard, and at some point, sometimes you can even hear, oh, this is my mom's voice, this is my dad's voice, this was my brother's, this was my sister's, this was my teacher, this was my rabbi, my priest, my, you know, whatever it might be. You know, oh, this was something that happened in this situation before, kind of repeating itself. I just, as you were saying that, I just couldn't help but think, um, you know, growing up in Ireland, the whole culture is, who do you think you are? In, in Ireland, the whole culture is, who do you think you are? So, you know, recovering from this inner critic is, so you're recovering Irish, you're saying. <laughs> it, it's actually true of many smaller countries that there's a certain kind of cultural criticism if you rise up, right? And that's a very common cultural uh, uh, value. Like I teach in Holland a lot. I see the same thing. It's like, oh, you can be good, but don't be too good. Who do you think you are to stand out and it's and and what you sometimes see here is people um, uh, the most recent immigrant cultures especially there'll be a little bit of that feeling um, that there's some sense of not wanting to rise up and so the children will be it's not not rise up it's not be seen in a certain way because it's it's perceived as dangerous so the children are taught to not, don't do that, don't show yourself, don't rise up in some way, don't stand out. Do good, but don't stand out. And so, you know, then if you stand out, there's some judgment will come down. Literally, as a kind of way to protect people. So there is, there's lots of different reasons why. It can be very interesting to figure that out. But it's secondary. If you're still believing the judgment, the first thing is to stop believing it, to stop, to let go of the belief and find the way to do that. I think actually we, we should stop now. Let's sit for a minute before we end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.